Welcome everyone to the Fairbank Center's weekly presentation on critical issues for contemporary China. It's a pleasure to introduce Professor Jessica Chen Weiss. She's an associate professor at Cornell after having previously taught at Yale. She's also an editor at the Washington Post Monkey, Monkey Cage blog. She received her BA from Stanford and her PhD from the University of California, San Diego. Her dissertation won the American Political Science Association's award for best dissertation in international relations. And that became her first book, Powerful Patriots, National Protest in China's Foreign Relations. Her second book, forthcoming, is called A World Safe for Autocracy, The Domestic Politics of China's Foreign Policy. She's going to tell us about that subject today. Welcome, Professor Weiss. I'm going to jump in really quickly and just add, talk about Q&A because we, I hope we'll have lots of questions. Um, if you want to do Q&A, there's a tab in the bottom of your screen. You can enter your questions in there. Um, if you don't feel comfortable sharing your name and affiliation with us, um, there's an anonymous box. So please check that. If not, um, please let us know where, who you are and where you're from. All right, thank you. Thanks so much for having me here today. And it's a particular treat uh, to appear in this series um, in honor of, of, of Ezra Vogel, whose leadership and mentorship meant so much uh, to all of those who participated in the National Committee on US-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program. Not long before he passed, uh, we had an email exchange where he encouraged us to contribute, particularly at this moment, um, a great moment of great flux in US-China relations and a key moment for the United States in particular to decide on a new trajectory um, concerning China. So it's really um, with some sadness, but also um, pleasure that I am able to join you today. So thanks for having me. So today I'd like to talk about my new book project on the domestic politics of Chinese foreign policy and what might lie ahead for US-China relations. And an increasingly prevalent view holds that the United States and China have, are perhaps at the precipice or already in a new Cold War. And in this view, China is a revisionist that poses an existential threat to US hegemony and the existing international order defined as the institutions, norms, and practices that make up global governance. At the, other, the same time, others have been much more sanguine that China's integration into the international system has worked, at least so far. There has been no major war in East Asia in decades. And if you could imagine the counterfactual, had the United States not normalized relations with China or excluded it from the system, you know, what would uh, the world today look like? And some have even argued that the major problem has been China's free riding or failure to contribute enough to the system. Yet in recent years, we've also seen far greater variation in China's international behavior across different issue areas than is implied either by the term revisionist uh, or stakeholder. In some international institutions, China has been a conservative defender, such as the UN Charter. At the same time, China has opposed others like the International Criminal Court and rejected the standing of the International Tribunal uh, on the South China Sea. And indeed, sometimes 
the Chinese government has appeared more invested in defending the existing uh, international institutions than even the United States under the Trump administration. Um, hence the irony of Xi Jinping appearing to defend free trade uh, and the WTO at Davos, as well as uh, cooperation on the coronavirus uh, at the same time as the Trump administration moved to pull out of the WHO and attacked NATO. And in one of the most important areas of global governance, climate change, we've seen a reversal uh, over time in China's stance from obstructionism uh, at Copenhagen to leadership at Paris in the space of just a few years. And so this variation is consistent with uh, an important article recently published by Ian Johnston, where he notes that China interacts differently with different orders, different parts of the international order, supportive of some, unsupportive of others, and partially supportive of still others. And importantly, he provides a description analysis of this rather than explanation for this variation. And I think it's important to note also that any placement of China in any of these boxes doesn't fully capture the evolution or the domestic contestation over how China has approached different issue areas, both in terms of its rhetoric on the international stage, but also its behavior. Because underneath the Chinese Communist Party's grand slogans under Xi Jinping of a China dream or a shared future for mankind, there's really significant issue by issue variation in China's attitude and behavior toward the international order. So the purpose centrally of my book is to account for this variation. So the starting premise of my argument is that the CCP is first and foremost concerned with its domestic survival in office with Xi Jinping currently at the helm. Of course, this is not its only ambition, but it's perhaps the most important one because there's very little that the CCP could get done uh, if not in power. And in particular, the CCP has been deathly afraid of what might be termed peaceful evolution and uh, contagion from overseas of democratic movements. Around the world, most communist states have collapsed and the CCP today is very afraid of going the way of the others. So as I've written in Foreign Affairs, the CCP's overarching goal is regime survival and a world safe for autocracy. And it's important to note that survival is about more than just repression. It's also about performance, providing uh, not just bread, but also circuses, if you will, uh, to bolster domestic support through persuasion as well as co-optation. So performance matters. So my book identifies two characteristics, centrality and contestation that shape the domestic politics of a given issue. And it's variation along these two different dimensions that helps shape China's interests and investments, both domestically and internationally. So what are these two dimensions? First, centrality. Since the late 1970s, the CCP has really relied on the central pillars of nationalism, economic performance, and stability to justify its continued authoritarian rule. As Mao declared, ours will no longer be a nation subject to insult and humiliation, we have stood up. And particularly as the last two Chinese regimes were ousted by nationalist movements, the CCP leadership has been especially concerned about defending the nation's sovereignty against foreign encroachment and returning China to the status and privileges of a great power. Second is economic growth. In the post-Mao era, the CCP has used growth in a litany of economic statistics, particularly GDP, to claim its competence and to justify its rule. And so under Deng Xiaoping, the CCP moved away from communist ideology as a barometer of good performance to you know, slogans such as to get rich is glorious and black or white, as long as it catches mice, it's a good cat. And finally, 
the CCP has emphasized public security, the ability to deliver uh, the citizenry from disease, disaster, crime, and terror, or Luan, keeping these at bay uh, as a central pillar of its continued legitimacy. So what does this mean then for China's foreign policy and international affairs? It's on issues that are linked tightly to these central pillars like Taiwan, Hong Kong, and territorial and maritime disputes that China has been hyperactive in making demands, insisting on its preferences, even when these have led to international censure, such as the rejection of the international tribunal ruling on the South China Sea. Um, and it's when international pressure has aimed at toppling these pillars or even changing the regime itself that international pressure has been especially likely uh, to backfire, both heightening the CCP's domestic insecurity and rallying domestic audiences around the CCP's leadership. But not all issues are central and less central issues like international peacekeeping and most issues before the United Nations, the Chinese government has been considerably more flexible, often reluctant to exercise its solo veto. And it's on these issues, such as international pressure on the Ch uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, that the Chinese government shifted, showed a flexibility adopting rhetoric about the environment and social consequences of its policies uh, under pressure uh, to conform with norms of those by developed countries. Similarly, on debt sustainability, the IMF applauded China's announcement of a debt sustainability framework in response to international criticism of the Belt and Road Initiative. Some features of centrality, the greater the centrality of an international issue is to the domestic, CCP's domestic legitimacy, the more I expect the Chinese government to rely on performance and not just repression in trying to address the issue. Repression is still possible as I'll discuss in a minute, but uh, international pressure that appears uh, aimed at these pillars or touches on the CCP's legitimacy is likely uh, to generate some kind of domestic performance to showcase uh, the government's nationalist credentials. And this uh, kind of pressure is more likely uh, to backfire. And in turn, what this suggests is that the more central a domestic issue is, uh, the more likely the government might have potential bargaining leverage. Of course, it may also be willing to go it alone in defiance of international norms and institutions, but uh, it is also likely if others view China's contributions as indispensable, uh, China is more likely to have leverage uh, to demand international reforms on those issues uh, or you know, to build uh, a separate and like-minded coalition of states to advance its views and an alternative set of institutions. Now, ultimately, whether or not these investments on central issues suggest greater cooperation or conflict uh, depends really upon the you know, prevailing norms and practices in that given issue area and how willing other stakeholders or parties are to make concessions to China's domestic imperatives. So what I provided here is a framework for understanding kind of the domestic drivers of China's investment in what, uh, for example, Scott Kastner, Margaret Pearson, and Chad Rector call uh, rising powers outside options or uh, which determine then whether or not uh, China is likely to be able to demand changes to a particular system or sector of global governance. But I think it's important to note that these central pillars, nationalism, growth, and domestic stability are often in tension with one another. And so managing these domestic pressures and what you might call contradictions um, is often uh, you know, a pretty risky bet. It means also 
that an issue that touches on one central pillar does not necessarily mean that the government is unable to make concessions. So for example, uh, Taylor Fraywell shows in his work that the CCP has been willing to make territorial compromises uh, with a neighboring state in order to shore up its domestic security and control over um, minority populations in that border region. Take another example, China's changing stance uh, in international discussions on carbon emissions uh, also illustrates an international issue that touches on two different central pillars. On the one hand, economic growth, on the other hand, uh, public stability. So initially the CCP viewed international efforts to limit carbon emissions as really threatening domestic economic growth. And the CCP acted as, as a spoiler uh, in the Copenhagen discussions. It wasn't until the scale of the domestic you know, pollution catastrophe was revealed, you know, triggering both you know, elite and mass outrage that the Chinese government ended up shifting strategies, ultimately investing in international efforts to limit carbon emissions. Public health and stability came to the fore during what we call, might call the airpocalypse. Uh, as Xi Jinping explicitly noted, quote, our environmental problems have reached such severe levels uh, that if not handled well, they most often easily incite mass incidents, the CCP's uh, terminology for mass protests. Another example of an issue that kind of a trade-off that the CCP faces in managing uh, different conflicting central pillars is the possibility of nationalist mobilization as I looked at in my first book. So grassroots outcry can help the CCP showcase its resolve and demonstrate that China won't be pushed around on a given issue area. That can strengthen the CCP's nationalist credentials, but it also comes at a risk or cost to domestic civility. And so this is a domestic dilemma between two central pillars that I've argued this international context uh, can help uh, adjudicate. Moving on to the question of contestation, uh, the other dimension of my framework. Contestation reflects the simple fact that even an authoritarian like China masks incredible domestic division and heterogeneity at both the elite as well as mass level, often um, you know, deriving from geographic, economic, as well, institutional, as well as ideological divisions within society. So even in authoritarian systems like China's, Power is fragmented and is contested. Central and local leaders face different incentives, different levels of information. So there's pervasive principal agent problems and central decisions and slogans must be interpreted um, by agents at the local level. And oftentimes you know, powerful industries and economic interests are far from faithful agents uh, of the state. We can't understand, for example, China's response to the outbreak of the coronavirus in Wuhan without reference to these domestic central local divisions. Had the CCP at the top known earlier of the extent of human-to-human -human transmission, for example, it would likely have acted much sooner to contain the outbreak. But instead, local government efforts to quash potential panic and disruption on the eve of important uh, political meetings ultimately ended up uh, stymieing what national level efforts to kind of grasp the scale of the emergency. And by then uh, it was really too late. Another interesting thing about the pandemic is that it revealed the trade-offs and order of priorities in the CCP's domestic uh, priorities. Stability first. The CCP allowed, you know, at the outset of the pandemic allowed uh, the Chinese economy to contract for the first time in decades and even crack down on conspiracy theories about the US origins of the coronavirus. And it was only once the outbreak was under control inside China 
that the government moved to restart the economy as well as uh, and fully embrace uh, conspiracy theories about the foreign origins or possible foreign origins of the virus, going on a propaganda drive to boast about China's superior response and the inadequacy of other government responses to COVID-19. So what are the international implications then of this international, uh, sorry, this domestic contestation and fragmentation? So first, the more contested an international issue is domestically, the more likely we are to see problems with implementation and enforcement of China's international commitments. So take, for example, in the environment, local officials have often resisted central instructions to shut down polluting firms um, regarding economic development as still being of primary significance uh, in cadre promotion evaluations. Similarly, uh, you know, when state leaders set out a direction but ultimately leave specifics to be hashed out under a general campaign or slogan, Oftentimes it's these concentrated domestic interests that end up dominating both the design and implementation of the policy process. So for example, uh, you know, recent research by Yuan Yuan Ang suggests that the you know, Belt and Road Initiative, Xi Jinping's signature initiative, has largely provided an encompassing but vague slogan that quote, makes it easy for domestic interest groups to use national policy as a cover to pursue their own agenda. So putting these together, Centrality and contestation, these two different dimensions. Some highly central issues are also highly contested like climate policy or internet governance, uh, exchange rates, et cetera. But some issues are highly central but characterized by much lower degrees of domestic contestation, um, such as Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Hong Kong. Some issues are characterized by low centrality as well as low contestation. As I said, most issues before the United Nations or China's involvement in international peacekeeping. But some low centrality issues are also characterized by a high degree of uh, contestation, like the Iran nuclear deal. So, for example, Ian Johnston notes that China played an important role in the Iran nuclear deal, helping you know, redesign a key reactor to reduce uh, Iran's future plutonium output. But at the same time, uh, China failed to halt the export of ballistic missile technology to Iran due to the well-connected interests of a particular arms exporter. Interestingly, I expect significant movement uh, as domestic actors try to manipulate the apparent centrality of a given issue, particularly as they try to lobby the central government for side payments or loopholes, they may try to link their demands to a central pillar uh, in order to increase the likelihood uh, of these concessions from the central government. So in a bidding war, if you will, for government attention, subnational actors that are successfully able to link their demands to a central pillar are more likely to succeed than those whose interests remain you know, much more peripheral and parochial. So for example, during, um, you know, during negotiations over China's accession to the WTO, a variety of different industries, ministries, and provincial governments lobbied heavily uh, for continued uh, economic protection, some more successfully than others. So for example, uh, Margaret Pearson notes that the telecommunications industry and its affiliated ministry, the Ministry of Information Industries, were much more successful by linking their demands for protection to uh, fears of a loss of sovereignty. Pearson writes that uh, industry officials claim that foreign internet providers would use access uh, to steal economic information, disseminate propaganda, and support dissidents or undermine the party. Such 
uh, arguments tapped into deep worries about loss of Chinese sovereignty to foreign powers and widespread fear of social unrest made such arguments especially potent. Another way in which issues can be malleable is by the government's own framing efforts, which I'll take up a little bit more in a few minutes. So the government um, may also try to increase the centrality of a given issue in order to dampen domestic dissent, as well as demonstrate resolve to international audiences. So for example, by framing the uh, you know, resistance or protests in Hong Kong or the US-China trade war as part of a national struggle uh, reminiscent of the Opium War, the Korean War, or other kind of protracted disputes in which the, you know, China eventually prevailed, the Chinese government has tried to build public support um, and raise the cost of international concessions and signal that it's you know, unwilling to be pushed around uh, on these issues by foreign powers. So uh, as Wei Yishu and Zhuge Liang note in their research, the Chinese government has been successful uh, at framing the US-China trade war uh, as an existential struggle for the uh, Chinese nation's development. When framed in this way, uh, Chinese surveys respondents were much more supportive of the government's handling of the trade war than when the economic costs were mentioned. So I now wanna talk about the issues in the upper left quadrant, these high centrality, low contestation issues typically defined by uh, sort of what is you know, central to, to nationalism. And so typically these are issues uh, that the Chinese government has called its so-called core interests, interests uh, issues that are central to the CCP's nationalist credentials. And so the landscape of nationalism in China is really one that's both cultivated, but also kind of selectively pruned back uh, by the state and its agents, whether that's through history textbooks, patriotic propaganda, or the media. Of course, the government isn't the only actor involved in nationalist myth-making, if you will, but it does steer the bounds of domestic discourse to align with its domestic and international objectives. So a key question that emerges here is, if nationalism is malleable or endogenous to the government's foreign policy objectives, how is it that it can have a constraining effect on decision-making? So first, nationalism defines which foreign policy issues are central and which are more peripheral to the government's uh, domestic legitimacy. So it shapes the domestic costs the government faces in navigating a crisis or foreign policy challenge. Mobilized nationalism, which I studied in my first book, Powerful Patriots, whether that's in the streets or increasingly online, it increases the costs of concession and it shapes the domestic decision-making environment because weak performance on issues that are central to the defense of the national interest can undermine the CCP's claim to rule. And so in this way, nationalism will shape the government's domestic calculus without actually tying its hands. And also popular nationalism may provide the spark for international confrontation as Chinese netizens or internet users go global uh, in their efforts to defend China as the controversy over uh, the NBA uh, and, and illustrates. Now, surveys that I've conducted and drawn on others show that Chinese attitudes are generally hawkish, with a majority of respondents endorsing greater uh, reliance on military strength, supporting greater spending on military uh, national defense, and approving of sending troops to disputed islands uh, in the East and South China Sea, as well as viewing the US military presence uh, as threatening in East Asia. Now, these hawkish sentiments may still affect 
the government's domestic calculus in managing international tensions, even if popular sentiment isn't a direct driver of Chinese foreign policy. And the more that an issue resonates with national sensitivities, I think amongst the Chinese public, as well as among elites, the more likely it is that foreign threats and actions are to generate this domestic pressure on Beijing to take a tough stance. China has largely managed to avoid the use of military force since 1979. So there must be other tactics the government has used to manage these public opinion costs. Sometimes these tactics can be symbolic, what I've called bluster, or maybe you might call it wolf warrior diplomacy, um, tough but vague talk that helps appease domestic demands for a more assertive stance, while also allowing the government to prioritize its economic and strategic interests in avoiding an outright conflict. So for example, in 2001, after a Chinese fighter jet collided with a US reconnaissance plane uh, over the South China Sea, the Chinese government decided to defuse the crisis. They were mourning the, you know, the Chinese pilot Wang Wei, but also repressing anti-American demonstrations, preventing the protests that had occurred uh, two years prior after the US bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Similarly, in 2013, when Beijing employed, announced an air defense uh, identification zone and demanded that foreign aircraft uh, comply with Chinese instructions when flying over the East China Sea, uh, this was an alternative to actually using force. Yet, there are still limits to how much I think the Chinese government can mitigate these domestic costs. So a colleague of mine, uh, and I surveyed Chinese internet users before, during, and after the US military restarted freedom of navigation patrols in the South China Sea to try to pick up the effect of these uh, maneuvers on public attitudes inside China. In the days following the patrols, we found an increase in disapproval of the Chinese government, uh, suggesting that although the Chinese government chose to exercise some restraint in the moment, it did so at some domestic cost. And so, for US deterrence efforts to succeed, the US, uh, sorry, the Chinese government must be able to absorb some amount of public opinion costs for not taking action in the face of what it deems US provocations. And it suggests that uh, in order to avoid provoking more than deterring the Chinese government, um, foreign policies, um, military actions need to be carefully calibrated in order to avoid having the very effect uh, that they might be trying to prevent. So in conclusion, the CCP has behaved strategically, in my view, investing in reshaping or rejecting or defending international uh, arrangements in issue areas that are central to its domestic rule, while being more willing to free ride or defer to international practices on issues that are less central or more peripheral to its domestic survival. So if China is simultaneously a revisionist, a reformer, a free rider, and a defender of the status quo in different issue areas, perhaps disgruntled stakeholder is a better catchphrase to sum up uh, China's role. Now, some have looked at China's growing international influence and its more assertive efforts to secure China's so-called core interests, including territorial and maritime claims in the region, and concluded that China is an existential enemy and threat to the United States and liberal democracy around the world. In my view, this is an exaggeration. As I wrote in Foreign Affairs, the CCP's regime security requires a world safe for autocracy, one that is secure from the threat of democratic diffusion uh, and foreign efforts 
to um, get the CCP to evolve. This is ultimately a nationalist vision, not a universalizing ideology for now. And in principle, a world safe for autocracy is also compatible with a world safe for democracy. So yes, the CCP is holding up its example as proof that countries can develop without democratizing. But so far at least, Beijing has not been bent on remaking other countries in its own image. Yes, Chinese companies are selling high-tech surveillance technology around the world for profit, but Beijing is not starting coups, arming communist guerrillas, or invading and installing communist regimes around the world. I've argued that what the CCP has sought is survival and legitimacy, one that's premised on three different kinds of performance, nationalism, economic welfare, and public stability. And so much of China's international behavior reflects the spillover effects of China's domestic investments. Sometimes these spillover effects are positive, as in the case of Chinese investments in you know, solar technology or renewables that, other, uh, that lower for everybody uh, the cost of going green. But at other times, China's investments domestically have had very negative externalities, at least from the perspective of many of those outside, including China's export of surveillance technology and demands that the NBA and other foreign companies engage in self-censorship to operate in the Chinese market. So taking seriously the heterogeneity of Chinese ideas and interests, I think ultimately means recognizing that what China wants is ultimately a contested as well as constantly moving target. And we should be aware of easy historical analogies or comparisons uh, to, for example, Stalin's uh, Soviet Union. For US policy, what does this imply? What kinds of international pressure are likely to succeed? And what kinds of pressure are likely to fail or backfire? First, if an issue is central but not contested, I think shifting Chinese behavior on such issues is going to require a countervailing but equally powerful central incentive for cooperation, which has become increasingly difficult as China has become more powerful and less asymmetrically dependent on access to foreign markets and inputs. And on central issues, in my view, foreign governments must be especially uh, concerned about counterproductive pressure, which could provoke rather than deter. So take, for example, uh, the issue of Hong Kong, where international condemnation and sanctions appear to have been no match for the CCP's fear of democratic contagion and a, what it sees as a separatist threat to national sovereignty. And if anything, the CCP has invoked foreign influence to justify its increasingly repressive policies, including the national security law. So an alternative, the US policy really ought to aim at preserving and strengthening the city's vitality um, while ensuring that any retaliatory sanctions ultimately do no harm uh, to Hong Kong, as former US Consul General in Hong Kong, Kurt Tong, has written. It would be more in useful to reinvigorate asylum policies to help refugees from Hong Kong, as well as uh, ethnic minorities persecuted in Xinjiang and elsewhere, uh, resettle uh, in the United States or elsewhere. At the same time, I've noted that even central issues can still be managed to keep tensions short of conflict, such as Taiwan and the East and South China Sea. And my, suggests, uh, my research suggests the importance of oftentimes symbolic performance in the form of propaganda and rhetoric for creating short-term flexibility, while also acknowledging the importance of and potentially counterproductive role of highly visible public pressure um, by outsiders on these domestically sensitive issues. Now, issues where Chinese interests domestically are more divided 
create many more opportunities for foreign governments to try to play one strong constituency off the other. So this worked, for example, I think on renminbi appreciation, where US-led multilateral pressure on the currency issue helped accelerate the uh, speed of renminbi appreciation for a time between 2005 and 2012, as I note with the co-author, even if uh, the CCP ultimately had to compensate what you might call the domestic losers of this appreciation with subsidies and other uh, policies to, to offset the pain economically. And so such a strategy isn't about getting China to do something that's not in China's interest, but about getting China to do something that's in the interests of some powerful domestic constituencies while still minimizing the opposition of others. And whether this is feasible, I think ultimately depends on you know, the relative balance of power among competing domestic interests. So for example, on currency appreciation, uh, there were powerful actors on both sides. But on other issues, one domestic actor might have a outside stake in the outcome. So capturing or dominating uh, the policy process without much opposition um, from other less vested interests. Uh, so for example, the Chinese military's interest in continuing to use landmines uh, drove the government's refusal to sign the Ottawa Treaty despite international pressure as Ian Johnston notes. And on internet governance, as Molly Roberts shows in her research, censorship acts like a regressive tax with elites having the means to kind of bypass the Great Firewall while less wealthy or less educated citizens don't. And many, even up to half of the Chinese internet population not even being aware of the Great Firewall's existence. And so in cases where the powerful don't suffer and the less powerful have little ability to mobilize demand changes, it's not a likely candidate uh, for this kind of a, a web strategy. Ultimately, I think international pressure tends to be most effective on low centrality issues. And then if an issue is not central and it's not particularly contested, uh, I think international actors mobilizing uh, pressure to persuade China to go along with an external consensus, such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or debt sustainability is relatively likely to succeed unless there's a powerful domestic actor that has captured policy. And in such cases where there are those domestic actors, um, international actors will need to be aware of uh, the likelihood of domestic side payments or loopholes um, that enable the Chinese government to meet these international commitments. So taking stock, what does China's rise mean for the future of international order? I expect most friction on so-called core interest issues like Hong Kong, Xinjiang, uh, and Taiwan. But at the same time, and we may be seeing those tensions, I think, erupting today, but at the same time, China's domestic social purpose, if you will, doesn't require the wholesale destruction of the existing international order, even though it does favor a more conservative version, one that emphasizes Westphalian principles of sovereignty, equality, and non-interference. So within the United Nations, for example, China has sought to of alter international obligations on human rights to emphasize the primacy of the state's sovereignty, oversight of civil society and economic development above all. Yet at the same time, the extraterritoriality of the national security law, as well as the intimidation of overseas Chinese and academic freedoms all threaten the principle of non-interference. So if China wants to defend a return to a more Westphalian system of mutual coexistence among sovereign states, it will need to curtail what you might call sort of expressions of sharp power uh, into other societies. And particularly as criticism of the CCP has grown abroad with the spread of the coronavirus around the world, we've also seen a 
and corresponding increase in the CCP's willingness uh, to engage in quote unquote wolf warrior diplomacy, including proclaiming superior system and denigrating the response of others. And so an open question is whether the CCP will more actively try to tip the scales in other countries against democracy and toward Chinese style autocracy. So far, Beijing's ideological ambitions have been much more nationalistic than they have been universalistic, even though its efforts to punish critics of the CCP have gone global in scope. To date, you know, China's overseas assistance has largely been pragmatic about the regime type of the host country. The strings attached are to the one China principle and not how autocratic or democratic uh, the other government is. And to the extent that China's mass diplomacy you know, has come with political strings. It's been demands that others praise China's efforts, not that other countries copy Chinese-style authoritarianism. This could change to be sure, but I think even if the CCP ultimately embraces a more universalizing mission, it's likely to still be hamstrung by real politic differences. For example, its relationship with Vietnam and their you know, territorial dispute has not really been eased by the fact that both are nominally communist. And so one of the risks, I think, and here I'll, I'll conclude, one of the risks of making ideological competition, the defining kind of framework or cornerstone of US strategy is that it could lead the CCP to conclude that it needs to make common cause with other autocracies in order to assure its domestic survival, including a more concerted effort to remake other countries in China's own image. An overly ideological or values first approach could backfire by prompting the CCP leadership to retaliate in kind, abandoning every effort that it's made so far to reassure others that, you know, as Vice Foreign Minister Liu Yutong stated, we do not export ideology, nor do we intend to engage in institutional competition. Of course, there's much to criticize uh, about the CCP's behavior from Xinjiang to Hong Kong and the South China Sea. But even well-intentioned sanctions may prove self-defeating if they lead China to double down on its global efforts to intimidate dissent. And ultimately, the more that the CCP leans on nationalism, especially the chauvinistic kind that has been on display lately, the more successful, sorry, the less successful it will be in its efforts to claim global leadership and attract international support. Ultimately, I think the best response to an increasingly nationalistic authoritarian China is to adopt what Ellie Wine and I called an asymmetric approach. Ultimately, the task of repairing and defending democracy has to start at home, overcoming partisan polarization and racism to rebuild the power of US example. And ultimately, efforts to tackle global issues like climate change and health will have greater benefits for repairing US influence than a head-on contest uh, with China for influence especially if the United States can move past the sclerosis and the partisan polarization of the past decade. I think Americans don't need to indulge in excessive anxiety about China, quote unquote, eating our lunch, um, as the comedian Bill Maher put it. Responsible leaders and legislation may differentiate between the Chinese government and US citizens of Asian ethnicity, but recent history suggests that heightened fear of an Asian adversary creates a permissive environment for violent attacks on anyone who looks Asian. So, in mobilizing for competition with China, the United States really needs to be careful, I think, about the risks of what you might call a Pyrrhic victory, an overreaction that imperils openness and inclusion at home, as well as pragmatic cooperation abroad, and particularly in areas where the United States has comparative strengths in education, innovation, and scientific research. America should be careful about not trying to out-China China. Whether it's in China or in the United States, nationalism is more likely to repel than attract followers, whether it's 
Wolf Warrior Diplomacy or America First. Thanks so much for your attention and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you very much, Jessica. Uh, wonderful presentation. Uh, let me lead off the uh, question session. Um, on the one hand, China is fearful about domestic regime survival uh, and uh, portrays itself as a victim uh, emphasizing the century of humiliation. On the other hand, it's presenting itself now as, as a, a global leader that's going to create a global uh, uh, group based on uh, common interests as China sees those common interests. And there's this pretty serious tension between uh, the portrayal as a victim and the, the uh, portrayal as uh, the new global leader uh, replacing the United States. Uh, do Chinese leaders uh, sense that uh, tension? Do, does it bother other elements of the Chinese elite? Uh, uh, is, is there some synthesis that you see coming? Mm. So I think this is one of the many examples and a really terrific example of the many kind of contradictions or tensions inside, uh, you know, Chinese rhetoric. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, so some would say, you know, the Chinese are capable of holding more than one thought in their head at the same time. And so it's really, I think, if we looked at different issues, uh, the areas in which, uh, you know, the Chinese government's rhetoric has most uh, emphasized the issues of humiliation, victimhood have really been on these, you know, high centrality, uh, low contestation issues, the, these so-called core uh, issues um, that are you know, integral to you know, perceived territorial integrity uh, and, and nationalism. Um, whereas the issues on which you know, China has uh, sought to you know, demonstrate a leading role, um, whether that's on climate change or defending you know, free trade ostensibly, um, you know, those are areas in which China has you know, been much more willing to proclaim uh, leadership. Now, adding it all up, uh, of course, I think these, in some ways, are the two faces of, uh, you know, resolve on the one hand and, and reassurance on the other. Uh, certainly, you know, CCP rhetoric has aimed at, uh, you know, at rhetoric and also behavior has aimed at, uh, you know, preventing the formation of kind of a counterbalancing anti, so-called anti-China coalition. Um, and one of the ways that it has done so is, is by trying to hold up uh, and you know, move closer to the center of you know the global stage. You know, whether it's the shared uh, future for uh, mankind or a community of common destiny, and these are you know all appeals to uh, shared so-called shared values. Um, and uh, you know, and at the same time, of course, you know, using um, you know a variety of more material uh, tools, uh, including you know goodies, sticks, and carrots to, to try to uh, you know, divide um, and, and peel off uh, different, uh, different, different countries or different governments um, from mobilizing in concert against China. Uh, one more question, kind of that level of generality. Uh, you mentioned elite 
and, and mass interests. Uh, uh, can you characterize the the differences between that you see between uh, uh, mass interests that, that lead to support of the central government and, and uh, maybe multiple elite interests that, that are different? Well, it's, you know, again, this has to be, I think, you know, looked at on an issue by issue um, basis, you know, and one of the things that I think we have seen uh, in the CCP's governance is a desire to, you know, get out ahead of potential mass discontent. And so whenever large gaps open up between where the elite are and where the policy is and where the masses are, there's often an attempt uh, to close those where they can, of course, you know, contestation over the form of the political system is not uh, one on which you know, that kind of responsiveness uh, has been allowed uh, to take place. Um, you know, but you know, more broadly, I think you, there are, of course, there are differences between you know, mass and elite attitudes. Um, and you know, on, you know, for example, uh, you know, surveys suggest that the elites you know, are relatively, well, elites can be defined in different ways, but uh, you know, elites who reached by these elite surveys are, are often more opinionated, more even more hawkish uh, than masses. And then, you know, sort of netizens, like the, the random, the nationally representative samples, um, you know, masses tend to be, you know, a little bit less uh, hawkish. But then if you look at, for example, um, and sort of netizens who are on averages, average, uh, you know, wealthier, better educated and more urban, they too, uh, tend to be more opinionated and have uh, more hawkish views uh, than their so mass counterparts. Thank you. Um, Nirmal Verma asks, uh, what is the centrality of the land border disputes in the, in the Himalayas? This is a really excellent question. Um, and it's one in which the, you know, the CCP has not allowed to uh, take a great deal of public prominence. Of course, they, you know, they didn't, for example, uh, report the deaths of um, PLA soldiers until months later. Um, and so it's been one that's been deliber deliberately, I think, kept out of, uh, you know, the public view, very much in contrast to the way it played out in the Indian media. Um, and so I think, of course, because it pertains to territorial sovereignty, uh, you, you know, it has to, it is somewhat central, but on the other hand, um, you know, relative to, you know, issues like, uh, you know, Taiwan or Hong Kong, Xinjiang, I would say that it is lower in centrality uh, than some of those top line, top level ones. Tom Gold uh, asks, uh, it's a great talk. Uh, what do you see as China's policy toward threats to boycott the Olympics? Uh, might they change policy as in 2008 due to foreign threats, even if they don't admit that, that that's what they're doing? Another great question, Tom, nice to see you. Um, so, you know, in 2008, of course, the changes uh, in Chinese, I think policy, China was very different. Of course, it was a different, uh, you know, much lower level, developed much less influential on the global stage. You know, some of the changes that I think uh, in, were documented as a result of international pressure had to do with China's stance on Darfur. So these are you know, atrocities that are taking place outside of China's borders as opposed to 
you know, you know, campaign inside China's borders, of course, although there was, you know, similar concerns uh, in Tibet. Um, you know, ultimately, I, I don't think that even the threat of a boycott um, would be sufficient, you know, to really force a reversal of the policies that have been taking place, the atrocities been taking place in Xinjiang. Um, and, but perhaps, you know, there could be, a, you know, a moderation. Um, you know, again, I think I defer to those, you know, on the, who study this issue more closely to determine whether or not, uh, you know, China's, like the move to, of more uh, of those detained uh, in the internment camps to, you know, forced labor programs, whether or not, or, you know, programs that amount to forced labor, whether or not that amounts to an improvement of the kind that, uh, you know, one is hoping to see. Um, you know, ultimately, I think what the outsiders would like to see, you know, would be a return to uh, you know, some of the policies that, that predated uh, the, the rapid construction and internment of, uh, you know, millions of, of Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. Getting to that outcome, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, even a concerted uh, campaign uh, to boycott the Beijing Olympics would have the intended effect. Thank you. Um, I need to put two questions together. Uh, Suzanne Hamner asks, could you give examples of uh, China's uh, territorial uh, compromises? And I, I would add to that, uh, uh, what's the explanation for the dramatic, uh, dramatically different handling of its earlier land border issues where it, it compromised uh, 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 all the issues it could compromise and the maritime issues where it's been, uh, been very uh, uh, forceful. Uh, um, Nick Drake says that he would, well, I'll put that together with Kellis Wong's question. Um, uh, do you see the centrality of issues changing over time? Uh, here's an example of dramatic change over time, territorial issues. Nick Drake says that he would like to uh, come in uh, live about the, the question of uh, territorial compromises. Nick, you want to speak up? Oh, sorry, Bill. I was just marking that so that we can move it into the answered questions because then everybody can see what the question is. Oh, okay. Uh, so everybody knows what the question is now. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I put it together and made it kind of a complicated question. <laughs> okay, terrific. So, you know, on in terms of the territorial compromises, the question that Suzanne asked, um, you know, Again, this is, you know, so China has along its borders, you know, more than a dozen, uh, you know, neighbors on, on by land. And this is, sort of, I refer you to the seminal work of Taylor Fable here, uh, you know, but with, you know, with Russia, with even with India, um, with Afghanistan, you know, all, all along, uh, you know, China's um, borders, there have been compromises, but they did cluster at particular points in time. Times, you know, in the 1960s uh, and then, you know, in the early 1990s, times when, you know, again, you know, China was facing a very different domestic and international environment. And I would say that it's 
you know, it's at the time, and this is again, very much borrowing from um, um, Taylor Frabel's work, um, you know, saw across the border a counterpart that could help seal the border and, uh, you know, resolve some of these concerns about security in, uh, you know, China's hinterland. By contrast, I think today, uh, if anything, you know, the, the Chinese government sees international actors as being part and parcel of the problem, um, is concerned about foreign fighters, is concerned about international support for, uh, you know, what it sees as, as threats to national unity and separatism. And so these are not cases in which I think the, and this is now I'm departing from, from Freyfeld's framework, um, these are not, I think, great candidates for uh, the Chinese government to see, uh, you know, cooperation is necessarily bringing about the kinds of uh, domestic benefits uh, that, that the CCP saw in this, these earlier phases of, of territorial compromise. And then in addition, you know, China's really resolved the, I would say, probably the easiest, um, you know, border disputes and what's remain and what remains are the harder ones. Um, Bill, you asked about the shifting centrality uh, of issues over time. Uh, I recently had the pleasure of hosting uh, researcher Andrea Giselli, uh, who's talking about the, you know, sort of China's, uh, you know, increasing global footprint and protecting uh, its security interests overseas. And, and for a long time, he suggests that the PLA was actually, you know, reluctant to defend, um, you know, intervene in these, you know, far-flung uh, you know, lands where, you know, a few Chinese civilians, uh, you know, interests might have been uh, threatened or in, in some cases killed. Um, seeing these as detracting from the core interests of you know, the core mission uh, of, of the People's Liberation Army. But increasingly, you know, particularly after Libya and the, kind of the evacuation of tens of thousands of, of Chinese, um, you know, there's been a, kind of a greater acceptance. Um, and so of, of you know, a willingness to embrace that a different way of thinking about uh, Chinese security is in including some of these, you know, um, more far-flung interests. So that's, an, I think, an example uh, of a way in which, even though, you know, again, relatively speaking, these are much less central than, you know, the, the sort of the, the long-standing um, concerns about territorial sovereignty, um, the issues across the Taiwan Strait, Nevertheless, you could see some issues, even in, especially when they trigger broad public outcry, um, as elevating the centrality of, of some of these, um, you know, issues far from China's, far from outside of the, the Asian region. Thanks. Uh, Wei Liang asks, uh, when and how did the South China Sea Islands become a core interest of China? Uh, close to the importance of homeland issues. Uh, will this policy definitely last or might it change in the future? Yeah. I'll just add to that. Uh, how would you recommend the US government respond to, for instance, uh, the new initiatives uh, uh, in taking over islands that have been controlled, or rocks that have been controlled by the Philippines? Great, uh, some good questions here. Um, so the, you know, 
Michael Swain and others have documented, you know, there was a big controversy over whether or not the South China Sea was in fact, you know, formally included in the term, you know, core interest in the early part of the Obama administration. Um, nevertheless, I think we could have seen, and Andrew Chubb's research has also documented this, you know, a growing assertiveness um, in terms of, uh, you know, sending patrols, fortifying, uh, deploying capabilities uh, in the South China Sea dating to about 2007. Um, some of the rhetoric, whether or not it exactly uh, took place at the timing that was widely reported. Nonetheless, uh, you know, the South China Sea has been growing in importance uh, in particular, you know, first, I think in strategic importance, not just, you know, for security reasons, but also the economic value, the, the resources there, et cetera. Um, nevertheless, I think that, uh, and I don't mean, I honestly, I don't see that that you know, fading uh, in importance. If anything, you know, Chubb's research suggests that this has been much more, you know, a continual accumulation uh, over time, not something that, you know, comes and goes. You know, there's not a whole lot of dramatic swings um, in these policies. These would reflect long-term uh, investments. Um, and so it's, um, you know, to your, to your question, Bill, what should the United States do? Uh, you know, this is very, you know, there's no kind of one size fits all, but I do think that you know, this research suggests that you know, public uh, admonishments, um, public patrols that seem to single out China um, and Chinese claims um, are uh, you know, likely to be you know, not particularly effective if not, if not counterproductive in stoking uh, you know, pressure on the Chinese government to mount ever more public you know, celebrations of uh, Chinese so-called rights protection activities uh, in the South China Sea. Um, you know, I've, a lot of this also depends, of course, it's not just a, it's, it's not a bilateral dispute, you know, it very much depends on what uh, other, you know, U.S. partners and allies in the area uh, are willing to do. Um, and so, you know, there's some, some combination of this, which is like, you know, I think the freedom of navigation patrols that, um, you know, contest, for example, Indian claims um, would, are part of, uh, you know, a strategy more broadly to, you know, enforce customary international law without necessarily singling out a particular country. But of course, any country that appears to be, uh, you know, it's not just China that is taken aback um, by these freedom of navigation operations. So, you know, some combination of this sort of not singling out a particular nationality or nation um, and, and doing so in a way that is relatively quiet uh, and not broadcast, you know, for public audiences, not embedding, um, you know, for example, media um, personnel on the, on the planes that are conducting these patrols, you know, all of that is, um, couldn't be uh, helpful um, in having the desired effect without the, the public backlash. Thank you. Um... Kate Joe from the University of Hawaii has a question that uh, I guess is picking up on your, your emphasis on economic performance as one of the key pillars. Uh, she says, uh, Xi Jinping does not seem to care about uh, economic uh, performance uh, if it's damaged by the anti-corruption campaign. Uh, how do you see the, the, the regime uh, perception of that trade-off? 
So within each of these central pillars, including growth, there's or this focus on economic welfare, there's also been a shift over time in the kinds of growth um, that the CCP has emphasized. And so, you know, the, the campaign against corruption, the anti-corruption campaign, I think has been part and parcel. Well, of course, it, there are many different potential motives here uh, and interests that are served by the, the campaign, you know, but one of them is to, you know, combat the perception that, you know, growth is, you know, fattened the elite at the expense of, uh, you know, less well-off in society. So the effort to, to make growth, to, uh, to emphasize higher quality growth, more equitable growth, uh, rather than, you know, High-speed growth at all costs, um, I think, has been, you know, a notable shift in dating, even predating uh, the Xi Jinping uh, regime, but nonetheless, or administration, but nonetheless, has accelerated certainly um, under this, under his, under his watch. So I would say that this is not about, uh, you know, uh, moving away from growth, but but looking at the kind of growth um, that the CCP has been encouraging and used to again legitimate its domestic performance. Uh, in a way, following up on that, uh, Gopal Nadadur, a uh, uh, Kennedy School student from India, asked, uh, to what extent is China's aggressive approach in the South China Sea and South Asia due to a burgeoning military-industrial military uh, complex as the, as the key domestic audience? And, what implications does your answer have for how U.S. and other countries should respond? This is a, an intriguing hypothesis, but I think one that has not been particularly well supported by those who have looked more closely uh, at this question. Um, in particular, um, you know, the civil military or appeal, you know, party military relations um, in China have continued to you know, privilege the party's interests over the military. Of course, every so often their military gets out ahead, particularly in terms of its you know, economic investments, et cetera. But you know, time and again, we've seen the kind of uh, you know, party taking charge again, you know, reigning in uh, the military or other organizational interests that appear to uh, you know, thwart um, the party's you know, overall uh, interests, um, whether that's, and so, you know, while the, the military, you know, retains the ability to, you know, think about and um, propose, you know, alternatives, it seems to me, based on, you know, the research of many of my fellow scholars in this area, uh, that the, the military is, you know, often kept on, on quite a short leash. Um, and it is not a particularly compelling explanation um, for what we've seen. Thank you. Uh... Graham Allison says, a great presentation. Uh, his question is, what is unique or special about China's and the party's choices and actions if you compare it with the US or other governments who also have a hierarchy of interests and are more assertive in protecting their core interests? Uh, where does China differ? significantly different from the uh, US or other countries. Thanks, Graham. This is great to see you. And thanks for the terrific question. So in principle, I think the framework could be adapted to other countries. Of course, the, def the defining kind of central pillars, um, the nature of the domestic interests that, that vie for uh, influence, um, 
they are going to be a little bit different and they may actually differ more frequently than they do in, in China where uh, there's, a, I think, a great deal more continuity even across uh, Chinese administrations than there is, for example, in the United States where we saw you know, a, a huge shift in what, for example, the Trump administration prioritized to what the Biden administration has prioritized. Um, and of course, there are many areas of continuity uh, there as well, particularly with regard to China. And so, um, you know, if you look, take this, you know, for example, to the United States, we might say, oh, well, actually, there's a whole lot less contestation, although, you know, maybe I'm trying to insert a little bit more of that. There's less contestation uh, over the issue of China uh, than there is, uh, you know, for example, on other, other issues, um, whether trade, for example. Um, and so trade uh, is not something that for example, the Biden administration has put front and center in the early days of uh, its administration, um, you know, preferring instead to look at some of these, you know, high centrality, low contestation issues as areas, you know, to lead with in, in terms of uh, moving forward with, with U.S. policy. So that's, you know, but of course, this is just the you know, potential beginning to exploring this, um, how far this you know, framework can travel across uh, space as well as over time. In principle, I don't think this is a framework that necessarily, I mean, autocracy doesn't appear anywhere in the framework. It just is a matter of, okay, what are the mechanisms, uh, you know, by which domestic interests uh, exercise influence in an autocracy is going to look different um, in some ways more than others um, than that looks in a democracy like the United States. Thanks. Uh, Stephen Wald from the Kennedy School asks, is it all that reassuring that China isn't trying to export its system? Uh, during the Cold War, for example, the US partnered with lots of non-democracies, including China, in order to contain and weaken the USSR. From a US perspective, an equally pragmatic Chinese approach might be more worrisome precisely because it is more likely to be more effective. Thanks, that's a terrific question. And I like the way you put that. I didn't, I don't mean it to be, first of all, this is sort of an, an analytic judgment. Um, I think it's important from the perspective of policy to accurately diagnose what it is one's strategic competitor is doing. Um, and so if one is going after a strategy or attempting to counter a strategy that isn't actually taking place, then one has missed the ball. But I very much agree with you that a much, you know, China's pragmatism is actually in its economic and its technical capabilities actually represent the far more uh, sort of influential portion of China's uh, global outreach. And so if the United States, for example, you know, and other countries want to compete with that, um, they'll have to do so not on the sort of ideological grounds, um, but rather on the, the material basis uh, of Chinese power. Lynette Ong asks, uh, in the Xi Jinping era, to what extent are netizens and policy elites a constraining factor? Uh, or is Xi Jinping ultimately able to dictate most policy directions? Lynette, thanks for that excellent question and good to see you. So, you know, here I think that it is, of course, this is engaging in a lot of speculation because I don't know, you know, inside of Xi Jinping's head, you know, how much these fears weigh upon him, these potential threats, of course. Um, you know, and there's no easy way to, you know, address that definitively. But nonetheless, you know, I think that we can look, uh, you know, more generally at 
um, speeches in which he's talked about the growing risks, um, including uh, speeches in which he's talked about uh, the importance of public opinion um, as a matter of uh, life or death for the Chinese Communist Party, including uh, managing the internet as the biggest variable. And so, um, you know, and perhaps even more provocatively, uh, we might suggest that a leader like Xi Jinping, who has, you know, arrogated power, um, faces, uh, you know, an important uh, question over whether he will get a third term uh, next year. You know, that is the kind of leader who, you know, if ousted, would face a far worse fate than, say, a democratically uh, elected leader or a leader who was voted out of office. Um, and of course, there's no specific timetable even though we might look at the Chinese political calendar and say, oh, we, we can see some uh, key windows of potential vulnerability. Nonetheless, you know, the CCP leadership could be ousted at any moment, um, depending on what, uh, you know, either a reshuffling inside, and Xi Jinping himself, you know, with a reshuffling inside the elite, let alone, uh, you know, some kind of mass revolt in the streets. There isn't the kind of, you know, regular electoral calendar uh, that dictates that. So, um, you know, again, this is uh, you know, not grounded in a lot of um, you know, concrete example of, oh, well, here's when you know, public opinion forced uh, you know, decision makers to recant. Um, but nonetheless, when you look at, for example, you know, the rollout of um, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, or you look at you know, Minier's work, for example, um, on you know, the pushback, at particularly you know, amongst the public, but also amongst elites at some kind of Marshall Plan, um, you know, there's a lot of resistance to China spending, you know, great sums of money overseas uh, when there are so many who, uh, you know, are trying to make ends meet, et cetera, uh, at home. And so, you know, this in domestic pushback does matter. Um, but again, it's, it's not as easy as you can see in a, in a more transparent democratic system. Andrew Rothman asked, how do U.S.-China relations fit into the structure you described. Does the Communist Party see collaborative common relations with Washington as, it, as being in its interests? Or is a significant level of tension more in line with the party's domestic agenda? Hmm. So here, I mean, I think there is sort of a parallelism where, uh, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is first and foremost interested in its domestic survival. And, you know, it has its, you know, international interests defined uh, largely by these domestic objectives. Um, and, you know, China relations, you know, really reflects whether or not there can be, uh, you know, whether there's confrontation on these issues that are the CCP deems core uh, to its uh, domestic legitimacy. And when it meets with that kind of resistance, uh, let alone pressure or sanctions, I think we are seeing the result of that, this domestic framework in action here. Um, and so it, it's, it, you know, of course, I think the CCP you know, recognizes that it is still not number one. It still needs, um, you know, a relatively you know, benign international environment uh, in which to, you know, continue to grow domestically, continue to innovate, uh, you know, develop self-reliance in, uh, you know, key uh, industries and technologies. It's not ready to fight, uh, you know, and win a war um, in, with the United States. So, uh, you know, for many reasons, of course, the Chinese government would like to avoid all-out confrontation. You see that also uh, in Chinese rhetoric. But I think that 
objective of you know, positive relations, if you will, you know, is, is still, you know, in tension with, you know, the kind of unyielding desire to, you know, reinforce, you know, Chinese resolve or bottom line uh, on, on many of these issues that they deem, you know, core to their uh, regime survival. Uh, Steve Schinkel asks, uh, how will China see the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan this year? Uh, how will this impact their concerns over extremism spilling over into China or impacting the Uyghurs? That's a tough one. I mean, I think it will depend on what happens. Uh, and I think that, you know, as you know, as Sheena Greitens and others have noted that, you know, China's concerns in Xinjiang uh, are in part framed in terms of the concern about uh, terrorism and, and the risk of the involvement of, of foreign fighters. And so it is going to be, I think, uh, dicey, um, but nonetheless, those who have, again, looked at this a little bit more closely, I think, uh, indicate that, you know, China is likely to try to work multilaterally to try to resolve this issue rather than unilaterally. Uh, to secure any sort of a post-U.S. future there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I just want to thank you for a wonderful presentation. Uh, it's obviously attracted interest from some of the world's leading scholars, uh, as well as the rest of us. And uh, so thanks, and uh, we look forward to having you back again. Thank you all, it's been a wonderful session and really terrific uh, questions. Thanks again.